Hi, this is Mark Iskowitz, editor-at-large for MMNM, and welcome to the MMNM podcast. Today, I'm welcoming my special guest and longtime friend, Alexandra Von Plato, who is CEO of Publicis Health, to the show. A year ago, Alex and I debriefed at the J.P. Morgan Healthcare Conference in San Francisco about industry trends, who was making a splash, and so on and so forth in the world of healthcare marketing. I figured I'd sit down with her over virtual coffee this time to do it again, following the first ever virtual JPM. How are you, how are you doing, Alex? I'm doing really well. It's nice to meet you virtually to talk about a virtual conference. Yes, isn't that fitting? Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, you know, as I mentioned, and as most of our audience is no doubt aware, this was JPM's first virtual event in its 39-year history. And just wanted to get your overall impressions of the first ever remote version of healthcare's premier investor conference. Well, my overall impressions are, you know, positive in terms of the experience of it. I mean, obviously, it's always better to be in person to feel the buzz, to meet people, to have those sidebar conversations. You know, the hallway press of humanity at JP Morgan is is half the battle, but also half the fun. But I have to say that as we all get used to, you know, meeting this way and engaging this way, it gives us an opportunity to actually sample a lot more of the content and to, um, you know, be able to hear from many more of the participants, because when you're physically there, you can only be in so many rooms at once. But when you're virtually there, you can dip in and out and uh, sample a lot more. So I felt like in that regard, it was very successful. I learned a lot. I saw more than I would have normally seen in terms of the presentations. And, um, you know, I think it taught us too that we don't necessarily need to have the big physical event to get value out of out of the presentations and out of the experience. So missed some things, but definitely appreciated um, the opportunity to to see much more than I usually see. It was. I agree with you uh, totally on the uh, on the advantages of remote. You know, I was just thinking back to uh, all of, of the logistical hassles uh, from a year ago that I didn't have to deal with. But uh, you know, one of the big ones that, that you pinpointed was just the the ease of being able to just click. In, into and out of sessions. And uh, obviously the fact that the Q&As uh, were right after the main company presentation, you know, was, was a big relief. Just thinking back to having to actually switch rooms, you know, to, to the infamous Borgia room against the sea of humanity, as you say, as more people were coming into the room that you were leaving. Um, I did, did not miss that. But, uh, you know, I, I agree with your overall take too. I, I, I felt that all of that was worth it you know, for the ability to see people in person, to bump into friends on the street, going in between meetings. And obviously you have the biotech showcase and the startup health uh, mm-hmm. festival going on. Speaking of, of venues, do you think that uh, it, it will take this opportunity to change venue? You know, there's been a lot of calls for uh, the West and St. Francis relinquishing, you know, its, its rights over JP Morgan and it's switching to a larger venue that can better accommodate the, the throng. I'm sure they're looking into it. I'm mean, not an expert on how they organize themselves, but you know, it definitely outgrew um, the St. Francis. But I also think that if they have a hybrid model going forward, like many of the medical congresses are doing now, let's hope COVID's in the rearview mirror this time next year. Many people who have the option to go virtually might decide and choose to go virtually again. I think maybe it won't be as well attended in the second year, 
potentially. The other phenomenon that's happening, and it's happening not just at JP Morgan, but in lots of these annual event-based spectacles, is that the announcements aren't being held for the event. You know, pharmaceutical company doesn't wait till ASCO to talk about its data, and deals aren't waiting for JP Morgan anymore. So the actual, you know, necessity value of the conference as the platform for an announcement isn't there the way it used to be. Now, it might be nice since you're going to hold your news for a couple of days or a week to make a big splash there, but it doesn't seem to be a necessity or even anything people are counting on. They have lots of things that gate, you know, their announcements of deals in particular as it relates to JP Morgan. And I don't think the physical event is going to be one of them anymore. There's other reasons to go to a conference. There's meetings to be had. There's people to meet. There's, you know, data to be shared. Um, But the, the announcement value seems to be something that is not as precious as it once was. Yeah. And and to my recollection, there weren't, you know, a great deal of of huge announcements, you know, leading into the conference in in terms of M&A, as there often is, you know, and has been uh, in in years past. Uh, Let's let's drill down a little bit further. Who do you think made a splash this year and why? I think that there was, you know, lots of discussions about just how potent the pipelines are. I don't know if anybody made a particular splash, but I feel like there's lots of confidence around what's in the pipelines, at, at, particularly at Big Pharma. I think that the, the level of partnering that's happening is, is definitely ramping up um, and that we see you know, um, a lot more activity in terms of a five-year outlook that will continue to have a robust rolling out of new innovation. There was a lot of talk about the hype of gene therapy, cell therapy, uh, digital therapeutics, but we are still in such early days and um, it's dismiss those things at your own peril is what I would say, because as an investor, these companies are are serious and formidable, are making tremendous investments in R&D and they're going to have requisite breakthroughs, I believe, coming forward, you know, over the next three to five years that are going to stun us, um, particularly in oncology, in immunology. And, you know, the other area which I was so happy to see so many CEOs address, which was CNS, because we haven't seen anything really new coming out of CNS in a long time. And this renewed interest in mental health and mental wellness and just how much of a personal cost it is on individuals and families, but on society uh, writ large. And we're starting to see, I think, the appreciation of that market and some real new science coming to the fore as well. So I think that there was a lot of things to be optimistic about in general, although there were no big announcements necessarily. uh, There's lots of just very pragmatic, sure-footed 
momentum going forward. Yeah, um, you mentioned CNS and you know, Biogen, you know, looking forward to the March PDUFA date for aducanumab, you know, and Alzheimer's, which would be huge, of course. And, uh, you know, announcing basically a, uh, a digital biomarker project with uh, Apple. But uh, this kind of made a very small ripple in, in the greater pond. Uh, but in, in gene therapies, you know, you talk about some of the stumbles, like Bluebird Bio obviously has had some, some trouble, you know, bringing its uh, gene therapies to, to market after getting approval. Uh, so it is early days, but it's definitely a lot of promise. So we agree with you there. And last year, I remember we were talking about this new um, generation of, of youngish CEOs who were um, kind of trying to connect with a younger audience of talent um, whose parents probably, you know, admired J&J and Bristol-Myers Squibb because they're research-driven and family-friendly. This year, you had Stefan Bansell, of course, and, and Dr. Ugar Sahin, probably not pronouncing his, his name properly, uh, of Moderna and um, BioNTech, uh, respectively, kind of earning that admiration through science. And obviously, you know, their pandemic response over the last 10 months has really um, done, done wonders for, for industry's reputation, right? Right. And to your point, if there anything was a buzz, it was, you know, COVID and the new platforms for vaccines and the rapid development and the way that COVID has accelerated digital transformation across the industry's value chain, but particularly in R&D and understanding that we set a new pace for drug development here. And there's lots of opportunity to continue to accelerate. You know, we're particularly focused on clinical trial recruiting and clinical trial patient experience. So getting the right patients identified, uh, creating a system that randomizes what what would be the optimal set of patients into trials and then supporting that patient experience that's really sophisticated customer service and customer relationship marketing and bringing that to the R&D stack and using that to make sure that all these great technologies get their full swing in terms of being able to field their trials efficiently and effectively uh, with the right patient populations. And then again, the role of real world evidence and the way we collect data and how the FDA in particular is beginning to really weigh RWE in terms of approvals and labels. That's all very exciting transformation coming to the R&D side. And I think COVID really was able to shine a light on the potentials for improvement there, even beyond the bench science. Yeah, we, we saw a few companies, uh, you know, sort of demonstrating their commitment to real world evidence. That was nice to see, including Roche. You know, speaking of the pandemic, it may be too early to kind of figure out kind of who was able to, you know, notwithstanding their market position, kind of take advantage, if you will, terrible turn of phrase or choice of words of the pandemic as a business opportunity. A couple of the pharmacies, uh, pharmacy chains like CVS and Walgreens talked about how they're working with the government around the rollout. And so they touted their capacity to to vaccinate. And then on, on the flip side, you had, you know, companies like Regeneron who came out with a monoclonal antibody, which too few people are using. It's causing uh, a lot of people who fit the profile uh, to be unnecessarily progressing into more severe cases and hospitalization, unfortunately. Uh, and then a company like Gilead, who sold $2.8 billion worth of uh, remdesivir last year. So already you're starting to see some companies that are kind of showing how they did last year. Any kind of comment on, on that? Obviously, the commitment to solving this you know, huge crisis is been met with, you know, fierce effort on the part of the industry. And I couldn't be more proud of the industry and working for the industry in the context of COVID. 
and seeing the things that were made to come to fruition just out of sheer will and guts. I don't really feel that the industry is necessarily going to have a tremendous financial advantage in the short run in terms of performance. I think that they deserve um, to get credit and for their contribution to society and that in their stock prices, I think their social corporate responsibility should be reflected adequately. I know that's not the way the investment community at JP Morgan looks at it, but my sense is, and working with some of these companies around some of these developments, they're really looking to solve the problem. And in the midterm, if COVID remains with us, there could be an opportunity for them to have commercial success with those solutions. But in the short run, they're almost pure investments and they're really working to put the economy back on its feet and save lives primarily. I'm not like very excited about the commercial potential of those solutions for COVID. I'm excited about the research and development advancements that COVID catalyzed and the renewing appreciation, if you will, or the new appreciation for pharmaceutical and biosciences and life sciences in the world as industries to admire, as companies to admire. I think uh, the trust component and the ability to appreciate the contribution of an industry to the world over time could be reflected in how those companies are valued. I know hope is in a strategy, but... <laughs> I certainly uh, expect that some of that will come to fruition. And we already see it with some of the upticks whenever there's an announcement about, you know, some new breakthrough and vaccine. J&J &J had an announcement a couple of days ago. There's a little uptick, you know, the idea that people are anticipating this. But in the real main, I don't think that those will be huge growth drivers for these businesses. But the specter of those solutions are are bigger maybe than the ultimate impact on the top or bottom line. Okay, uh, choose your own adventure. Do you wanna talk about the lack of gender diversity uh, at the conference or would you like to share another trend or something that surfaced or that gained traction from your perspective? I'm gonna try and squeeze in both of those. Diversity across the board is obviously on everybody's mind in every industry and the heartening part was there was a fabulous conversation between Ken Frazier and Jamie Diamond, where they opened the conversation talking about the need for diversity and the commitments that they're making and that the industry is making. But I, I, I think what's great is it's a topic of conversation and it's an active topic of conversation in every single presentation that corporate social responsibility and the commitment to diversity is at the top of everybody's to-do list and and leadership agenda. So that's the good news. Clearly, there's a lot of work to be done. And there just weren't a lot of women in general ever. Look, I'm used to that. And we have miles and miles to go. There were many meetings where there were multiple leaders in the Q&A part of the presentations, and there were no women. There were five, four or five people, and there were no women. Joanna Mercier at Gilead stood out as a, you know, incredibly articulate powerful commercial leader. But I was disappointed that I didn't see more of my strong leader women clients on those panels. I think there's so many of them. And they're still not present in that top of the C-suite 
level of discussion. So we have a ways to go. I think we're making headway. I know some very powerful women who continue to rise up in the ranks. Elaine Sorg at AbbVie is one of them, you know, one of the, the most successful leaders in pharma at AbbVie. But I, I still feel like, you know, we have a long way to go um, from a gender standpoint. And certainly we don't have enough black people in our business and, you know, really approaching the development of black talent across the board in healthcare is critical to, to the health of, you know, our society and our communities, as well as the right thing to do. It's disappointing, but it's on the, it's now on the radar and it's undeniable and everybody's declaring it as a priority. So once you say it out loud, we know from behavioral science, (laughs) that's half the battle because now True. people have to live up to the expectations they're setting for their own organizations. Right, right. We got to hold, hold them accountable. Great points there. Thank you for mentioning the Q&A between um, Ken Frazier and Jamie Damone. That was really good. I was thinking of you actually at that uh, juncture because uh, I thought I think another thing we were talking about last year was the propensity or the uh, hesitancy for pharma to engage around social issues. And that seems to have kind of dissipated somewhat. That's kind of what I was thinking, like, wow, this is, it feels fairly normal, you know, for Ken Frazier to be talking about that after, you know, he uh, stood on principle, which I thought was one of the most principled moves, if not the most principled move by a pharma CEO ever to leave the president's council, you know, following the Charlottesville incident. What what other trend, you know, surfaced or gained traction that, that you that stood out to you from a CEO's perspective? We talked about data. We talked, you know, the the idea of using real world evidence, the notion that we talked about marketing coming to R and D and the need to build the experience side and the the targeting side of that. I feel like this this whole conference was pretty straightforward, Mark. There was nothing I can say that was surprising but a lot to be proud of. A lot of steady progress in certainly in the commitment to science and the commitment to patients and the commitment to diversity. I felt from the whole event that even though we weren't together and even though we missed the energy of, of you know being in that mad crush, there was solid good points being made and a lot of reason to think that we're moving steadily into, you know, a new era of scientific breakthrough that's going to be hopefully more accessible and more uniformly distributed than it has in, you know, recent decades. Right. Health equity. It's definitely on, on people's radar now. So if it's there, people are talking about it, then it should uh, gain gain more traction. So uh, one last question. Uh, do you think if, if it's back in San Francisco next year, will you go? Yes. Okay. I know. I was the one who just said maybe not everybody would go. It'll be interesting to see who does go. It'll be interesting to see if the CEOs go. Some of us have reason to go because we want to meet people that we don't get a chance to see all together. But if, you know, you're a CEO of a top pharmaceutical company, you might not need the venue (laughs) in the same way. It'll be interesting to see who feels the need to go. I noticed that in some cases, the CEOs weren't there. Um, right. That they, they sent, you know, a CFO and a chief commercial officer. And it's always, to me, very nice to see the top leadership talk about their business in plain English without really pitching too hard, taking live questions. So 
I get a lot out of that. Um, so that's the reason why if I got a chance to go again, I would. Well, it's, it's so good to hear your take and, and to have you translate all the trends for our audience, Alex. And just uh, great to, to chat with you again. Thanks again for doing this. My pleasure. Thank you. And I hope we get to see each other soon. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have. If you like this podcast as much as I did, please like it. Uh, subscribe to us. Help others discover the show. Well, that'll do it for another episode of the MMM Podcast for Alexandra Von Plato. For myself, um, we'll see you next time, everybody, on the MMM Podcast. Take care. Mm-hmm.